Welcome to another episode of the Renegade Joint Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture, urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and Keller Williams agent. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations throughout Metro Detroit. This group is about networking and doing deals. This ain't your grandma's Rhea, folks. No guru bullshit from the front. No smell of stale coffee, Ben Gay, and or disappointment. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Those sad little dingy rooms. Oh, I should have, would have, could have. RDI is also this podcast where... Many times a week I sit down and we have multiple shows and basically what we're trying to do is entertain and hopefully educate you as well. And if you enjoy this podcast, come on, I've had a slump here. I need some help. Go on to iTunes, rate and review on iTunes. This podcast is free, folks. F-R-E-E. Get off your lazy butt and go rate me on iTunes if you enjoy the podcast. If you don't, stop listening, fuck off and go do something else, all right? If you do, go rate and review. Hook a brother up. I can't think of a reason why you wouldn't, if you're on your iPhone right now, hit that little purple thing, right? It's purple. It's like a little eye with a apostrophes around it. Unfortunately, they make this difficult. Don't blame me. Hit search, type in Renegade Detroit Investors Podcast, and then below you'll see podcast. Click on podcast, then you'll see reviews. Click on reviews, and you'll see write a review. I want you to give me the stars and write a review. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It's how we grow the podcast. If you enjoy the podcast and if you keep listening to the podcast, you enjoy the podcast, go rate and review. All right. Seriously, hook a brother up. Really appreciate it. Want to grow this podcast. We're like halfway through the year. My goal to 5,000 weekly listeners and we just got to 1,000 in three months. So we need to do better. Basically, we need to do significantly better. Go rate and review. All right. Also, a ton of you are doing this, but I need more of you to do it. Share this across Facebook, share the podcast. All right. Really appreciate it. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, go to renegadedetroit.com. If you're interested in any of the local meetups, go to meetup.com forward slash renegade Detroit investors, or go to facebook.com forward slash Detroit investment club. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. I'm on Snapchat at Jeremy A. Burgess. And, of course, go to YouTube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. All right, legal disclaimer. Don't blame me, man. I hate doing this shit every week, too, but this world's full of morons. And no way, shape, or form should anything that I and or my guests say be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decision or decisions, that you contact a local or a lawyer or other licensed professionals be an adult. Don't fucking sue me. All right. Time for the Renegade Joint Investors Show Quote of the Week, where I try to pick a quote that sets the tone for the podcast and hopefully your week. And this week I went with something for you guys I think you'll like. The ability to learn faster than your competitors may be the only sustainable competitive advantage. Ari Deju. I hope I said that right. Some French fuck. All right. The ability to learn faster then your competitors may be the only sustainable competitive advantage. That's some uh, solid shit right there, right? So welcome to part three of the shift. And don't worry, folks, guess what's coming next week? Guests again. I'm going to continue to do this book series. Wait a second. I might continue to do this book series and have guests. If you go rate and review on iTunes, stop being lazy and go do it. I'll wait. All right. But starting next week, we're going to have guests on again. I took a little break. I really appreciate your patience with me. I'm doing this. I'm enjoying this so much. I'm going to keep doing it. All right. We're going to read. um, 
I got some books lined up, some more stuff. If you have any books you're you're maybe thinking about like a study along or a read along, I'm not going to guarantee if I do it or when I'll do it. But if you have any, I'd be interested. Uh, go ahead and send me an email, Jeremy at RenegadeDetroit.com, J-E-R-E-M-Y at RenegadeDetroit.com. If you have any books you would actually like me to read for this, I think it'd be fun. I'm going to keep doing it. I'm having a good time with it. We're on part three of the shift. And for those who are reading along, all right, I know there's some of you. And if you're not reading along, I encourage you. So just get get the book, right? Get the book out and read along. So here we go. We're starting at the bottom of page. Got your highlighter out too, right? Hear that? All right, I'm ready. Got my highlighter. Got my coffee. Got my water. Page 103. At the bottom, cultivation. Even though the lead conversion process of capturing, connecting, and closing is the path you seek, there will always be a small percentage of leads that can't be converted directly to an appointment. No matter how skilled you are or how hard you try, an immediate meeting with them just isn't in the cards. There will be a few people who are always just not ready or willing to meet with you, but who are still worth pursuing. This is when your cultivation system becomes your indirect path to an appointment. It could be as simple as touching base regularly or as systematic as entering them in your database and implementing a touch program. While you will always seek to meet with prospective sellers or buyers immediately, if you can't but still believe they are motivated, you should stay in close contact until you can get an appointment. This is the purpose of cultivation. Also, this is why I have my follow-up Friday, right? Follow-up Friday for three hours every Friday. I do follow-up Friday. I start with everybody that I've ever made an offer to, and then I move into people I never got to even make an offer to or set an appointment with, and I just follow up with people as often as possible, right? And here's a picture. It says cultivating leads for future conversions, like capture, connect, cultivate, close to an appointment, right? Most agents struggle with cultivation. If they connect but can't immediately close for an appointment, they usually let the lead slip. They simply don't go back to the people. Oddly enough, it surprises them and disappoints them when they hear that those people listed their house or bought a home with another agent. Many times they never never even hear about it. The business just slides away to somebody else. They seem to have no clue as to why their lead generation efforts aren't building a pipeline of business. They don't have a pipeline because they don't cultivate the leads that can't immediately be closed for an appointment. I like to use farming analogies here, and this is why I love farming so much, right? Farming requires forethought, planning, care, planting seeds, right? You just don't immediately get a potato or corn or tomato or whatever else you're farming, right? There's some amount of time where you have to plant, care for, follow up, weed, that kind of thing. Back to the book. The process of cementing a relationship, eight by eight programs, and saturating 33 touch programs is well covered in the millionaire real estate agent. Cultivation is the specific and purposeful application of these principles. Here you are looking to convert a potential lead you already have. You know they want to buy or sell, but they aren't sure, but you aren't sure when. They may not know either. A simple cultivation program allows you to stay in touch and be there when they decide. You can't know or predict when they will come to a decision, but if you're connecting with them in a systematic way, you'll have a great chance of being there when they do. That's when you'll be able to close for an appointment. Gary and the Box. 
When I first got started in the business, I developed a simple method for tracking all my active leads. I had a 3x5 index card box divided into two sections, A through Z, and January through December. Every time I generated an active lead, I created two 3x5 index cards. One had their contact information, including everything I knew about them. That card went in my permanent record, my A through Z file. This is a group I use for my regular touch program. The other card was my active leads card that just had their contact information and all the information about their buying or selling needs. That card went in the January through December file according to when I next needed to contact them. Whatever month I was working in, I'd simply grab the stack of cards and contact them accordingly. Sometimes the cards would go back in the stack for a near-term follow-up, and sometimes they'd be refiled in a future month. It all depended on my sense of their current motivation. This system is simple and effective. Clearly, technology can do the same thing as index cards. And once you start consistently generating a lot of leads, a contact management computer program will be required. But even then, it isn't wise to leave the active cultivation job to your technology. You must personally make the contacts. You need to reconnect to see where they are, provide information, and continue to build a relationship. And what he's talking about here is a CRM, right? Here at the Dealey Group, we use Team Leads. They work for a bunch of investors, and they use Podio. I personally use Zoho. I'm not sure it matters what you use, but you need some way of organizing and maintaining a database of relationships. And this is for wholesale, flipping, real estate agent. I don't care what you're selling, right? I met with Castle. Um, They're going over some sales stuff. I was trying to help them out a little bit with some of their cold calling and whatnot. Um, You need some way to track this. And also, you should automate a lot of it, right? Um, Get some sort of auto text program, auto email. But what he's talking about here is this, this isn't. Um, a way to avoid picking up the phone because a lot of people just don't like calling. You know, stop being a bitch and call. Back to the book. Lead cultivation, contacting leads that wouldn't originally set an appointment with you is a vital part of your time-blocked lead generation time. I'm going to highlight that. Some of that time will be connecting and closing new leads you've just captured and some of it will be cultivating those leads you've captured and connected with before. For the second group, you'll need to constantly review and assess where your prospects are in the process, answer their current questions, and continue to close for an appointment. There is really no additional script for this. Just continue to use your connecting and closing scripts. You simply want to keep moving the relationship along. Be friendly and caring. Offer more information or services than they can respond to. And emphasize the benefits of getting together face-to-face. While some leads may require long-term cultivation, don't ever assume waiting to meet is in their best interest. The sooner they meet with you and actively begin the process of selling or buying their house, the more likely they are to get the best deal the market can deliver, and the sooner transaction will be completed. The seller table that matters. As you navigate from capturing a name and number to closing for an appointment, remember one key issue you must deal with, which seller table constitutes an appointment. Not all tables have the same value. By table, I mean either the conversation you have at the kitchen table or on the phone. Depending on the market, you may consider getting them on the phone as the only appointment setting you'll need. Other markets may require getting to the kitchen table. In the seller's market, the battle for the battle is for getting seller listings. Homes sell fast, inventories, inventory stays low. 
and homeowners think anyone can sell their house. In this kind of market, you must get to the kitchen table to give you a chance to assess motivation and have a shot taking their listing. And we're in a hot market right now, at least in Metro Detroit. Typically, you will not do much pre-qualification over the phone, and you will try and get to the kitchen table as fast as possible. In a buyer's market, not all listings may be worth taking. In a shifted market, unmotivated or unrealistic sellers can cost you time and money. The decision as to whether you will take an overpriced listing is your is really yours to make. In our experience, the top agents' philosophies differ greatly on this, and either side has shown they can be very successful. You will want to do more phone prequalification and assessment and motivation before you go on any appointment. You will likely be more selective in who you give priority in your follow-up. You want to get to the table that matters, the one that is motivated to sell, realistic in their expectations, and respectful of the value you are bringing. Be a lead converter. Lead conversion is one of the most skilled-based aspects of your real estate business, uh, real estate sales business. And after lead generation, lead conversion is the most business-critical activity you must master. So first he says lead generation and then lead conversion, right? It is one of the last things you do, you delegate and arguably the highest dollar productive you dollar productive use of your time. Getting appointments to make presentations is in fact a moment of truth. Get an appointment and it's all downhill from there. Fail to get an appointment and there is no hill to climb. It is where the possible business that comes from your lead generating efforts can turn into probably business and ultimately into profitable business. If you commit to mastering the skills of lead conversion, you will lift yourself above your competition. You will be even more than a lead generator. You'll be a lead converter. You won't just be fishing. You'll be catching. Uh, Tactic number six, catch people in your web. Internet lead conversion. You can't expect to meet the challenges of today with yesterday's tools and expect to be in business tomorrow. A, I'm going to highlight that. I, you know, many people say, I don't want to, I get this all the time, right? Are you on Facebook? No, I'm not on Facebook. It's a distraction. Well, how about you don't do distracting things on Facebook? How about you use Facebook as a way to generate leads for your business and assist your current cl- and past clients, right? I don't want to start a blog. Why not start a blog to help your current clients and past clients and fish for new clients, right? I don't want to get on Snapchat. Why not? You know, just this is what we're talking about, right? Do you want to be a fucking dinosaur? You know, no, get to it. Back to the book. A shift forces you to rethink almost everything you do. The scarcity of business and the competition for it tugs at your pocketbook and tests your willpower. One crucial area you may have to reassess is your internet strategy, which sits the crossroads of expense management and lead generation. The shift has forced you to remargin your business, cutting spending on everything that isn't leading to real financial results. As a result, the expenses of your internet strategy are now under serious scrutiny. The shift has forced you to refocus your lead generation on methods that deliver motivated leads ready to buy or sell today, and even demand that your long-term activities yield as much near-term business as possible. Consequently, the results of your internet strategy are now under serious scrutiny as well. And here's a hitch. Generating a quality lead from the internet is difficult in good times, and a shift, it can be downright daunting. If your website isn't consistently generating appointments, uh, 
with motivated buyers, buyers and sellers, then it isn't earning its keep. Contrary to a lot of tech talk, success on the internet isn't measured in clicks, unique visitors, page views, or even registration. It's measured just one way, and appointments to do business. And I would go even further. Back in the day, when YouTube wasn't much around, um, I had a YouTube series called um, Detroit Investor TV that I did. And I think the most views I got on one of those videos was like 450. So not a lot of views. And it wasn't a particularly well done series. It was, however, very authentic and raw. You can tell some of the videos I was doing. It's the middle of the fucking night. You know, it was four o'clock in the morning. I'm just getting beat up by section eight. And, you know, I was just working around the clock at that time. So anyway, my point being that I sold a couple hundred houses because of these YouTube videos. Specifically, the most important ones to me at the time, um, almost a hundred fully renovated and either rented and or land contracted homes. Do you think it's worth doing a YouTube video? If you can do that. So what he's saying is you don't need 10,000 views. And I tell this to people all the time. You just need the one right person. Or in this case, in my case, I had like 50 right people all from at most 450 views back to the book. Unfortunately, many agents have long operated under a misconception that a website is more about professional branding or validity than about lead generation. They build a site without much forethought or strategy simply because they believe their buyers or sellers expect them to have one. They're working on their mistaken myth of if I build it, they will come as a result. They spend precious time, effort and money to build what is essentially an online business card or at best, a virtual brochure. They provide information for information's sake. That's why so many come to understand that while the internet can be a great source of leads, it can also be a great source of financial loss and frustration. That's so true. Right? What are you guys highlighting? I'm always curious. I wonder if any I wonder if we should share notes. And usually they experience the financial loss and frustration long before the leads. The hard truth is that buyers don't really care if you have a website. They just want to look at all the homes for sale and research neighborhoods to live in, and they'll use any site that allows them to do this. Sellers don't really care if you have a website. They just want to know the value of their home and the sites where it will be marketed for sale. Like buyers, they will use any site that allows them to do this. If your site doesn't meet these clear-cut expectations in a matter that causes buyers and sellers to want to use your site and, ultimately, you then the web isn't working for you. The most straightforward way I can put this is a website is a tool for you to offer consumers what they want in exchange for what you want. It's a vehicle that enables you to offer them real estate information in exchange for the contact information, a win-win information swap that must be the foundation of your entire internet strategy. Your website may accomplish more, but you won't accept anything less. When you view it in this light and hold it accountable to this approach, your website can become one of the most important, powerful, lead-generating, and appointment-converting tools in your arsenal. Because there is so much confusion about the Internet's role in our industry, any advanced discussion on how your website strategy might adapt to a market shift is premature until we've reviewed the fundamentals of an effective internet lead generation plan. Let me go back and highlight uh, this part here. 
the internet lead generation model. Our extensive research interviews and mastermind sessions with some of the most successful internet agents in our industry led us to a surprisingly simple three-step approach to internet lead generation. The model encompasses three areas of focus, creating and maintaining an internet presence, lead generating for traffic, and converting those leads to appointments. The big aha is that contrary to what some may think, internet consumers don't really exist. History reveals that when any niche becomes the majority, they are no longer a niche. This is exactly what has happened to the internet regarding real estate. Mountains of research report, mountains of research report that essentially all our customers today are internet customers, which makes them, well, our customers. Why is that significant? It gets us out of the midst of internet customers and internet specialists, limiting beliefs that imply unique buyers and sellers who require extraordinary effort and highly specialized expertise. This simply, this, that's simply no longer true. For all intents and purposes, everyone is now using the internet and we're all internet agents. Get that? We're all internet agents. The internet is no longer about the extraordinary, it's about the ordinary. And it's as much a part of our daily work as mobile phones and cars. There's a picture here. Number one, create and maintain an internet presence, tools and content. Number two, lead generate for traffic, online marketing, offline marketing. Number three, capture, connect, cultivate, and close leads, compelling offers, capture mechanisms, quick responses. Number one, Create and maintain an internet presence. A successful website doesn't have to do a lot, but it must do a few things really well. Thankfully, this doesn't cost, this doesn't have to cost a lot of money, require technical expertise on your part, or even occupy much of your time. The widespread adoption of the internet and real estate has both made things affordable and create a cottage industry of service providers to help you. Many of the features that were once a domain of costly custom websites are now common on affordable template sites. As such, the vast majority of agents should begin with template websites and only graduate to custom websites when their lead generation results demand it. Just to kind of give you an idea, when I started this business um, 10 years ago as a real estate investor, I think I spent some ridiculous amount of money on like a static page, right? With like static website with like eight, nine pages or something. And it was like 15, 20 grand, right? You can literally accomplish something significantly better now with lots of bells and whistles, with lead generation capture, tons of content, unlimited number of pages for significantly less than $1,000. That's what we're kind of talking about here. Back to the book. So what are the few important things your site must do well? Or in other words, what are the elements of a great real estate sales website? To begin with, your site needs to have a professional, up-to-date look that lends credibility to your image and brand. Don't confuse this with cutting-edge, award-winning design. Unless you've purposely chosen this as a point of differentiation between you and your competitors, and you know for a fact it's money well-invested, your website design need only meet your customers' basic expectations, and that doesn't require a consultant. After all, you're all an internet-powered con- empowered consumer yourself. You search on Google and Yahoo, buy books on Amazon, watch videos on YouTube, fill your attic uh, fill your attic on eBay and later empty it with the help of Craigslist. You'll recognize sites that just make you scratch your head, close the browser and move on. You'll also recognize an uncluttered, easy to navigate professional site. When you see them, make sure your site is one of those. Do you have a website? I know if you go to renegadetroit.com right now, it's not very good, but it's being worked on while most technology professionals, um, 
capably designed template or custom sites to meet these basic consumer design expectations, meeting your lead generation expectations is not as easy. Consumers surf real estate websites a little like they browse car lots on Sunday afternoon. The reason you see so many folks peering through car windows on Sundays is there is that the car lot is closed and the potential car buyers can take leisurely look at vehicles without getting sold. It's a no hassle opportunity to kick tires and check out the merchandise. However, this desire to remain anonymous is in direct conflict with the goal of the dealership. You and your website have the same dilemma. Remember, your site's primary purpose is to capture leads that become appointments. So you'll have to look beyond design and aesthetics to verify that any website you purchase or create has effective points of contact. You must aggressively think offer response and lead capture at every turn on your site. I like that. Make your website accountable, right? Make all your marketing dollars accountable if possible. Are potential buyers and sellers given reasons and easy to find ways to phone or email you? These points of contact should be well-placed and easily found on the page. They also have to to be labeled in plain language, avoiding real estate jargon so that your potential customers understand what you're offering. For example, a common mistake is to offer people a free CMA instead of try instead try something simple and widely understood like my home's value. If you are ready or willing to make contact with you, they then it should be simple and easy to do. Make them work and they will contact some make them work and they will contact someone else. That's an excellent point. It needs to be simple, right? You will also want a compelling, memorable website address or domain name. In fact, you'll probably have more than one. Of course, you'll have to you'll have your main internet address like yourname.com, yourbrand.com, but you'll also have buyer, seller, and or niche addresses like yourareahomes.com, yourniche.com. These unique and simple sites will be named for the special area they feature. Some people have literally hundreds of sites because they're so cheap to put up, right? The goal of such sites is to pull people to you by giving them numerous ways to find you while they're looking for what they want. In some cases, you may use some of the secondary domain names in your marketing and simply have them pointed or redirected to your primary website. In other cases, they might be standalone sites that serve the niche target of your marketing efforts. As a result, depending on the scope of your internet lead generation focus, you may own a handful or hundreds. Finally, research tells us that your buyers and sellers clearly expect a few critical elements. Buyers want the ability to search all the homes in the area, internet data exchange searches or IDX, get instant notification on properties that meet the criteria, buyer instant notifications or BINs, and save search criteria for future visits. Saved searches. Besides these those tools, they are also looking for information on communities, neighborhoods, schools, and the home buying process. Likewise, sellers want to know how much their home is worth, a home valuation or CMA request form. As for content, sellers want market statistics and information on the home selling process. You must meet or exceed buyer and seller expectations in these areas to go anywhere. And then there's the, uh, he has a picture here. The elements of a great agent website. Number one, foundational, professional design, points of contact, compelling domain name. Number two, buyer, key tools, property search, buyer instant notifications, 
search savers. Number two, key content, community slash neighborhood, schools, home buying process. Number three, seller, key tools, home value request. Number two, key content, markets, statistics, home selling process. The checklist is just that, a checklist. The tools are common enough that it shouldn't be a struggle to incorporate any into your website. The real challenge is to make sure that when a buyer or seller visits your site, these features are appropriately spotlighted, not lost in a left-hand navigation bar that runs 22 items long. That's one of my pet peeves, right? The website should be simple and easy to use. Back to the book. The first thing a buyer or seller must see is exactly what they came for. Everything else is a distraction. When your website meets these achievable yet non-negotiable standards, you will know that you can lead generate to it with confidence. This is very important. Having exactly what people want is more than half the battle. As technology evolves, tools change and vendors come and go. Don't lose sight of what buyers and sellers are primarily seeking. It won't change. So when you offer what they want, your site will be sticky, as the techies say, because when visitors who find your site find what they want, they tend to hang around, right? So there's also some, you can use um, Google Analytics and things like that. I'm not very good at this shit, but how much time they spend on your website, right? I think the last time I checked, you have like two seconds after they click. So that's literally how impatient people are. So if you're wondering what, how serious this is, it's pretty fucking serious, right? You literally have two seconds or less when they click on your website for them to find what they're looking for or they're long gone. And frankly, that number is probably shorter now. Probably needs to, um, in 2017 anyway, which is what we're in, probably needs to be mobile ready as well. This core understanding of their wants and needs must be the driving force in how you build, update, and maintain your website. Begin with the end in mind. That's a lot of this stuff. Not the website you want. A lot of people do that. And quite frankly, I was very guilty of that and still am from time to time, right? What do I want? What do I want? Almost, it doesn't really matter what I want unless it aligns with what a seller or buyer wants, right? Or if you're wholesaling, whatever. When the buyers and sellers who who find you on the web get what they want and have every opportunity to give you what you want, their contact information, you have a chance to get what you need, an appointment. Number two, lead generate for traffic. No matter how great your website, if no one ever visits it, then it is in effect useless. People must find your site or you might as well not have one. A great site with no traffic is nothing. A great site with great traffic is everything. To be successful with your site, you must have a strong lead generation plan that pulls, pushes, and leads people to it. Hell yeah. How could you do that? He's probably going to get to it, right? I obviously have some ideas. The most effective lead generation plan will use both offline and online marketing to accomplish this. All right. Talk to me, Gary. I'm highlighting a lot in this chapter. The internet age has collapsed in many traditional competitive borders. Territories that were once highly local are now practically global. Local bookstore uh, booksellers compete with Amazon. Area car dealerships wage war with CarMax. But do local real estate agents really have to go toe-to-toe with national internet real estate companies? Research emphatically tells us no. Real estate is uniquely local industry, and yet and your best competitive advantage still stems from your local market knowledge and position. The challenge in competing with these companies is that they are throwing big money at online marketing. 
their number one target is search engine placement for all the generic keyword searches, but they've also gobbled up great general domain names like homes.com and realtor.com. And this game of search engine placement in your business doesn't appear in the top three or four results. You are invisible to consumers using only search engines to find websites. That's crazy, right? And true. This is where why you want to be a niche and specific, I think, a lot of times too, right? It takes dollars invested in search engine optimization or pay-per-click to get results. So here's the truth. Very few, if any, can cost-effectively compete nationally or even regionally against these big, well-funded internet players and their big-name search engine game. That's where their focus is and where they heavily invest to create a competitive advantage. But don't despair. There's an even bigger truth. That's all these big national companies can do, and they can't cost-effectively compete against individuals with targeted and offline marketing. The research is compelling on this. That's where you should invest to create your online competitive advantage. So what he's talking about here is like a niche. If you go on, like let's say... I don't know, your West Bloomfield real estate agent. Specifically, um, let's say Lakeside property. Let's, let's make it more broad. Let's, well, no, no, West Bloomfield, that's very specific, right? You're an expert in West Bloomfield Lakeside property, right? If you go to westbloomfieldlakesideproperty.com and somebody is searching for, hey, I'd like to own a property in West Bloomfield, uh, but I really want some lakefront. And they type it in, boom, you're number one at the top. And now you're whooping the ass of realtor.com, right? Because somebody typed in something very specific instead of homes in West Bloomfield. Get what we're saying here? Back to the book. For every website you own, you have the ability to obtain local specific domain names that matter in your market and point back to your site. You can counter realestate.com with your subdivision.com. From neighbor, neighborhoods to individual street names to local activities or amenities, you can niche your way to spectacular success and keep your competition local in scale. And the same tactic advantage exists in search engine placement and pay-per-click. National and regional players neither have the knowledge nor the resources to counter your ability to tap into the mindset and awareness of your local customers. Our research suggests that the more precise someone makes their web search, e.g. South Tampa golf course homes versus golf resort properties, the higher their motivation. A precise search is indicative of someone who has a clear sense of their wants and needs and is further along in the process. Savvy local real estate agents have the advantage. Targeted, targeted internet lead generation strategies allow you to be a big fish in a strategically defined pond and capture anyone attracted to it. This is what do you think I'm doing with this podcast, guys? Oh, yeah. Yeah, what do you think I'm doing with my Facebook Live videos when I'm talking about how to convert wholesale leads, right? And we're doing cold calling and, and all that. And I have the meeting with the investors. And uh, what do you think all that is, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I enjoy doing all those things. And I like sharing and helping with people. But I am fishing too, right? Back to the book. Another essential to winning the internet lead generation game is to think beyond high-tech marketing. In fact, I'm going to suggest you think low-tech, especially in the beginning. High-tech lead generation methods such as search engine optimization, pay-per-click, 
and listing aggregators can be highly effective when aimed at a local defined target market. But they can be wonderfully complemented and actually surpassed by incorporating your website or websites into all existing low-tech lead generation materials. Your website should appear on your yard signs, letterhead, business cards, brochures, flyers, direct mail, all advertising. In short, on anything and everything you use in your marketing business. You wouldn't think you'd have to put this in a book. But I think he's right. Most of the high-tech agents were surveyed confessed that as much as 50% of their traffic came from offline marketing. It's a bit counterintuitive, but the best way to succeed online is to market your website offline. And it's so true, right? And he has a big picture here on page 119 that's a little complicated to explain, but he basically, the path of the consumer on the internet, there's number one, off line marketing, yard signs, flyers, brochures, print advertising, direct mail, promotional items, business cards, word of mouth. And he's talking about pushing it to your website. Number two, online search engine marketing, either paid or organic results pushing to your website. Number three, online related sites marketing like listing aggregators, directories, site advertising, third party lead generators. And those all push you to agent websites, um, either your main site, your buyer site, your seller site, your niche site. And as site features, um, leads go into the website. And then uh, these lead follow-up systems, you know, passive search saver and the email, active database entry, 8 by 8 program, 33 touch program. That's talking about emails and texts, interactive. Phone or email needs analysis, specific ongoing follow-up, like asking for a CMA or what is my home worth or that kind of thing. Um, and then converting that into an active buyer and or seller, right? So the path that buyers and sellers follow to find you on the internet can originate online, but as often as not, can begin offline as well. Or like in this podcast, like go to renegadedetroit.com. There you go. The key is to make sure your online and your offline marketing complement each other. Possibly one way to do that is to make your website an integral component of your lead generation conversion plan. Some of the most successful agents we work with aggressively route the public to their site. All their offline marketing includes their main website address. They also have targeted search engine marketing that directs online traffic to their site. So what are they talking about here, right? It can be confusing. So in my YouTube videos, there are links back to my site, renegadedetroit.com. I talk about in this podcast, renegadedetroit.com. And the notes of this podcast is renegadedetroit.com along with some other sites, right? Like if you're interested in going to Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. Go to meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors. Um, and on there, even there's links back to renegadedetroit.com, right? So it's like he's talking about um, Kelly Cancel and Gretel, whatever, the little bread, you know, leave bread behind. And you know, everything leads back to your, your website or websites, right? Um, back to the book. All of their offline marketing includes their main website address. They have also targeted search engine marketing that directs online traffic to their site and leveraging their listings. They post their properties on multiple sites with list aggregators, all of which direct visitors to contact the agent or to visit the agent's website. And once what, once visitors arrive, lead capture and conversion is waiting. Central to this approach is a well thought out method to capture inquiries. So you can close for an appointment. 
Without a strong conversion plan in place, sending everyone to your website is like sending them to outer space. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. It's a great trip from them, but you'll never see them again. Yeah. And we want to be helpful, but we're trying to make money too, right? We're trying to help people. Finally, if you own multiple targeted domain names or websites for specific groups of buyers, sellers, or niche audiences, you'll want to fit them into your larger strategy as economically as possible. Domain names can simply be redirected to your main site, and you can then measure the traffic generated by these campaigns with simple web metrics. And that's what we talk about, right? So let's say I was looking for, you know, oaklandcountycashbuyers.com. And then they went there and it fed them to a page, renegadedetroit.com forward slash Oakland County buyers. That's what he's talking about, right? And then I can measure the traffic coming from that site. And therefore, any marketing dollars I spent, I can tie it back and I can know where the leads came from. Domain names can be simply redirected to your main site and then can then measure the traffic generated by these campaigns with simple web metrics. What we mean by web metrics are any of the tools that measure traffic to your website and give you visibility into what someone does while they're on your site. For instance, Google offers a popular free tool called Google Analytics to do this for you. If you choose to maintain standalone sites, you'll want to keep some things in mind. First, multiple sites can be a little like multiple storefronts. Each site will require its own regular upkeep and maintenance. So make sure your business is equipped to handle this. You, someone on your team or a contractor will have to monitor and regularly update the site. Second, as much as possible, you should leverage the tools you've created for your primary site. For instance, if you have an IDX search feature, it can be framed out or designed into multiple sites. Ideally, you won't have to build duplicate tools for each site, but rather have the same set of tools all hooked up to one of them. The internet allows for amazing economies of scale, so you could take full advantage of them. There's a picture here. It says targeted sites equals targeted marketing. It has a, a main site, and it's got multiple buyer sites, multiple seller sites, and multiple niche sites, and they all feed information back and forth between them. Number three, capture, connect, cultivate, and close leads. On the one hand, the lead conversion strategy for the internet isn't all that different from what we discussed in tactic number five, get to the table. The process is the same, capture, connect, close, and when you can't close, cultivate. There are a couple of critical differences. The first is that in the capture step, if a prospect makes a sign call or an ad call into your office, you can verbally capture, connect, and close. If they call your IVR, Interactive Voice Response, or 800 number, it immediately captures their phone number through caller ID or they leave a message, again, allowing you to call them back, connect, and close. The internet doesn't present you with with such a direct and controllable path to an appointment. With the internet, you must be intentional about capturing enough useful information to be able to get back to prospects. That is so important. Man, I don't know if you can say enough, right? This is kind of like, you know, to get free report, give up your email. Or or um, if you want to come in, let me you log in using your Facebook. Um, and then I, then I force you to Facebook or I get an email address or... Follow me on Twitter or something. You know, the more is better and a phone number and email address is the best. If that doesn't happen, you don't really have a lead. Your website may generate a lot of traffic, but it won't generate any transactions. You may gain some bragging rights among the techies, but 
you don't earn any points with true business people. Make sure your site has a way for the consumer to register, but also a good reason to use it. Can they easily register for you to supply them with compelling services and information? These could be the same exact offer response hooks you use and your other lead generating methods. From special reports like common mistakes to avoid to personal services like pre-qualifying or a property price valuation, just be sure they are clearly visible on every page. And finally, since most visitors will be on your site to look at properties, you must decide how far you will let them go before you ask them to register. It's a delicate balance with you with which you'll need to experiment. The important thing to remember is that the offers will have to be very persuasive to get the immediate response you seek. And I also I say add a lot of value, right? Not just um, compelling, but I guess that's what he's talking about here. Valuable. Valuable enough that they, that they feel like giving it up. So don't be bringing any lukewarm shit, right? No lukewarm bath water for me, sir or ma'am. The other vital distinction is in regard to lead cultivation. You're either going to capture a name and a number or a name and email address. If someone gives you a name and number online, you simply call them back and handle it just like any other captured inquiry. But if all you get online is email address, you'll put in a passive type position where you must cultivate the relationship to see if they'll ever give you their name and or phone number. Or you could just make it mandatory. Research shows that buyers and sellers, uh, buyers and sellers captured on the internet often begin their online search as much as 18 months before they intend to buy or sell. Remember that car lot on the Sunday analogy? Well, it's true. The internet allows buyers and sellers to arrive early in the process and start looking around. The cultivation process we described in Tactic 5, Get to the Table, is much more active with live inquiries, but tends to be more passive with online inquiries. Online cultivation is akin to having an internet farm in the same way you have a geographic farm. It's actually closer to a marketing plan than a conversion plan with a couple key exceptions. You must still respond quickly to have a chance to cultivate them and technology makes it economical to have many contacts. Let's first address response time. Speed wins this contest almost every time. This is something I tell and I need to work on this too. I mean, I'm not saying this like I'm an expert in all this shit. I hope you realize I'm talking about best practices and things that have worked and worked, but speed, speed is important. So speed to lead. It sure is a lot easier to be first than it is to be best. If you can be first and best, that's even better. Buyers and sellers who decide it's time to stop being anonymous and start the active process expect reasonably timed responses to their internet queries. Once they have registered or emailed you, fast response is critical. Internet usage has everyone accustomed to fast response times. So you should think in terms of responding in less than 24 minutes rather than hours. An auto-response email that is warm and service-oriented is a great first step and an excellent way to ensure you give a quick response. But an immediate phone call or personal email is better. It is. It's always better. Or text, too, I would say. Um, Joe has us, Joe Delia, um, he has us do uh, call, text, email, right? If you can't do it personally, then your staff can do this. There are also call center services that can do it for you 24-7, 365. Anyone who does this for you must make the quick response in your name and get enough information so you can contact them yourself when you become available. 
Now, please understand that some younger people or those who are tech-oriented actually prefer or enjoy being followed up with via email and text messaging. For them, this can be the right way to begin a relationship, which can then lead to a phone call and appointment to meet. So it's not necessarily wrong to respond by email if that's all you have, uh, because that's probably how they like you to respond. And I respond to them in the media, in the medium at which they respond, right? So if they reach out by text, I don't call them with a response. I text them back. If they reach out by email, I respond by email. Give them the information. I do sometimes put in calls to action. Hey, do you want to um, do you want to schedule a phone call? Or do you want to schedule a physical meeting? That kind of thing. Back to the book. The mantra: respond like they respond isn't a bad one. Oh, see, I see. I just need to be patient. Sorry, Gary. Sorry, Gary. The mantra respond like they respond isn't a bad one to follow at all. And this is where a contact management system can become critical if you hope to track and cultivate dozens or even hundreds of online prospects in your internet farm over time. A good system would be able to record when you contacted them, what was said, what services were agreed upon, and when the next contact needs to take place. Most website packages for templates or custom sites can easily incorporate save searches or buyer uh, instant notification systems. These tools are excellent for managing the large numbers of online prospects you might have in your contact management system. The most successful agents follow up quickly whenever users register for these services with a personal offer to help them refine their search criteria. This is a great chance to connect and possibly close the prospect for an appointment. The internet brings you many people who have set timelines and expectations that are usually longer and slower than necessary. They actually could, would, and perhaps should buy or sell right now, but they've left the mark. They let the market shift, lull them into slow motion. Be sure to give them every opportunity to move faster, and encourage them to get a real life perspective about what's going on now, what's going on in the market now. For those who can't be converted, you have the opportunity to gauge their motivation and offer other services like a prequalification consultation with a mortgage vendor, or a free estimate of their home's value. That can move them along in the process. Remember, it's not just about what you offer and how you offer it, but it can make a difference. So don't get focused on the offers you make. Experiment with how and when you make them until you find what works. You might also consider investigating tools that offer you a glimpse into buyer and seller activity. They can measure when and how often people revisit the save searches or view properties online. Periods of increased activity thus become your cue to reach out, reconnect, and offer your assistance and set an appointment. So if you are going to engage in serious internet-based lead generation and conversion during a shift, be sure to thoroughly research the technical tools for contact management and lead cultivation that could help you succeed. In our research with top agents on their web strategies, we made a concerted effort to establish a baseline measure for success and lead capture and closing. Much like our lead, uh, lead generation model modeling and the millionaire real estate agent, we believe that if you can put numbers behind your expectations and you have a quantifiable goal to reach for and eventually surpass. And here he has points of conversion. Uh, visitors by type, seller rates 15%, buyer rates 85%. Visitors by res uh, registrations, 20%, seller rates 3.25%, buyer rates. Registrations to appointments, 5% for sellers, 5% for buyers. 
As you can see, the majority of visitors are buyers. Interestingly, because sellers tend to be more motivated in their quest to determine the value of their home, sellers are more likely to register. The net result for you, for every 700 visitors you drive to your site, you should be able to capture approximately 20 seller and 20 buyer registrations. That should yield an average of one buyer appointment or one seller appointment. Bear in mind that these averages don't reflect your efforts in your market. Some agents far surpass these benchmarks and others fall far short. Tweaking your site and its offers through trial and error should get the numbers up and make a difference. And I love that. Don't just put it up. Don't just try something and, and or stick with it. See if you can't do some sort of split test or if you can't measure. If you can't um, track and Try multiple things, you know, do one thing at a time and test it and then try multiple things. Back to the book. That sums up the foundation of your internet lead generation. You'll need to create and maintain a website that is designed to capture and close leads to appointments. You'll employ offer response marketing both online and offline to targeted audiences designed to drive traffic to the site and once there, get them to register or contact you directly. And finally, you'll have the systems for capturing, connecting, cultivating, and closing those leads to appointments to do business with you. With this clear understanding in mind, let's look at how you'll implement the strategy in a shifting market. Internet leads in a shifting market. Shifts force you to reevaluate everything you do, especially in an area like the internet that carries fixed ongoing costs. You might be asking yourself if the internet is really where you should be spending precious time, money, and effort. It is if you can deliver results that will depend on the quality of the offers you make around and on your website. Earlier, I shared research on the average conversion rates for an effective real estate website. Those numbers showed agents got one buyer appointment and one seller appointment for every 700 visitors. I also mentioned that some agents surpass those benchmarks. Our research actually revealed a select group of agents who were doubling these conversion rates on the buyer side with 7% of buyers registering and 10% being closed to appointments. That translates to an average of four buyer appointments instead of one. What those agents did differently was master the what and where of internet offer response. An attendee at the Internet Lead Conversion Summit we sponsored summed up the difference between good internet offer response marketing and great internet offer response marketing as a difference between offering thin bait and fat bait. He explained that your website must have thin bait that attracts people to your website and keeps them there for a while. But then he warned you must offer something more. The fat bait for them to want to register. Thin bait lures while fat bait hooks. You'll need both to catch the most leads and succeed at your highest level. And here he has another picture with offline offers, thin bait, thin bait, thin bait. And these offline offers push you to a website. And then this website, um, agent's website is for main, for buyer, for seller, for niche, and then some sort of fat bait to get them to register, right? Thin bait is everything people expect you to find to expect to find at your website. All the properties for sale on the market, community and neighborhood information, home value resources, and market statistics are what they are looking for. These are the things you'll cleverly market to pull buyers and sellers to your website. The key is to make sure that your bait stands out from the crowd. Fat bait can be more detailed information on the listings, virtual tours, detailed neighborhood information, community calendars, property tax and mortgage calculators, and other additional valuable information. 
The list is endless, so be creative. Take a look at the other offline offers you're making in a shifted market. Best Buy list, foreclosure tour, short sale information, pricing studies, I don't know, podcasts, mm-hmm. YouTube channels, um, Snapchat. Uh, that should that could be something cool, right? Like uh, just do a Snapchat thing. Anyway, back to the book. And consider incorporating them online. In addition to that, you can offer timely services such as mortgage refinancing or home staging consultations for home buyers or first-time home buyers, investment and fi- financing seminars for buyers. So that's like going with a model like offer value. I do like the offer value model. You know, why do you think I do this podcast? Beyond these, you can also offer free reports. Examples include the five secrets to getting your home sold now or the three mistakes buyers make in in a buyer's market that match the market conditions of the moment. The more interesting and attractive you make your offers, the more leads they will generate. It is well worth your time to to give this your best thinking and testing. Don't be satisfied with just doing average marketing for average results. Create unique, valuable offers that will earn you outstanding results. Just as you advertise your sellers, stand out from the crowd and be more compelling than your competition. So do what you say you're going to do right. If you stand out, stand out. Offer something good. Besides bait, the other issues you'll have to master is when and where to capture buyer registrations. There are four widely issued strategies. See figure 28, which I already discussed with you, I think. No, it's on the next page. I apologize. There are four widely issues ranging from upfront registration to open searches with registration attached to ongoing use. Not having a registration is not an option. Front-end registration tends to get more registrations but yields fewer appointments on average. While a few may go to other sites where no registration is required, proponents of this strategy insist they are few in number and less motivated in general. On the other end, open searches with registration required to save a search or email drip notification does get fewer registrations, but these tend to be more easily converted to appointments. While this method allows for a lot of anonymous searches, proponents argue that those individuals who register tend to be further along in the process and more committed to working with you. In the end, both strategies are absolutely valued. However, the wisdom of a shift says you must experiment until you find methods that yield you the most appointments. So the picture they're talking about here is four lead capture strategies. Number one, upfront. That's like a big funnel, right? Visitors must register before entering search criteria. And there's a lot of things you could do, like maybe use your Google registration criteria uh, or Facebook or something like that. Doesn't so they don't have to create a unique login. You don't have to be an asshole and make them do that, right? One more password, remember, in real life. Number two, pre-results. Visitors can enter criteria but must register before results are displayed. And we're going down the the funnel, right? So number one at the top is the biggest. Number two is a little smaller. Number three is even smaller. Limited results. Visitors can enter criteria and view limited information, but must register for full, complete details. So, And at the very bottom, number four, open search with drip. Visitors can search without registering, but must register for saved searches or emailed listings. Our research showed you might actually get more registrations with upfront. It's a bit counterintuitive, and I struggled with it until I thought about it. More people are given the opportunity to register upfront, while fewer people are serious enough to want to save their searches or get email notifications. So the upfront strategy captures most 
more registrations while the open search captures a smaller but more motivated group, thus the higher appointments. It makes sense when you look at it this way. Rather than automatically adopting the fourth strategy, there are valid concerns you should think before you decide. In particular, if you are well-equipped to follow up with and cultivate large numbers of leads, then the upfront strategy may be better for you. Agents skilled in cultivation that have effective teams or technology to support their lead conversion programs should have the best ability to take advantage of the strategy. But beware, large numbers of unqualified leads can quickly swamp the unprepared. And then confusion over who is and is not a lead can result in lost time, lower conversion rates, and less actual business. If you have any doubts about your ability to cultivate large numbers of captured leads, inquiries over captured inquiries over time, choose the fourth option and focus your resources on fewer but higher quality leads. Experiment and see which strategy works for you. And a good example that in the wholesaling world, in the investor world, is the difference between yellow letters and postcards. In general, you're going to get twice the response rate with a yellow letter, but you're going to get a lot more tire kickers, right? Well, how'd you get my information? Blah, 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 right? And you're going to get a lot less of, a lot less uh, lower response rate with postcards. But I found that the people who respond are more serious, right? So that's what he's talking about here. Neither way is really wrong or right. It's more like um, what works for you and test, 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 test. No matter which way you go, however, I want you to be like impatient Eric. A while back, my son, John, my co-author Jay and my friend Don Hobbs and I went fly fishing in Montana with two guides. Funny thing is we not only caught a lot of fish, but we were also taught an incredible lesson in lead generating. Before we began, Don told me that whoever went with Eric would catch the most fish, no matter their skill, experience, or time in the water. And guess what? He was right. Each day, Eric's boat landed the most trout. Why? Because Eric was impatient. If a lure hole wasn't delivering results, he gave it little time uh, before you have made, before he made a change, he would row to another hole or tie on a new fly. The other guide's uh, approach was the opposite. His favorite line was, "Leave your fly there. I like it." And he would fish a particular spot or fly for extended periods of time. Don't get me wrong; this guide was plenty good, but Eric was simply legendary. At the end of our trip, our biggest catch, besides some great fish, was the lesson we learned about lures. And locations. If something isn't working, move on or expect to come home empty handed. He's talking about testing, right? If something isn't working, so don't fall in love with shit or your idea, right? How many times have you done that? I've done that so many times. If your marketing isn't sending enough people to your site or your offers aren't getting registration responses, do something different immediately. Be like Eric and don't wait too long before you change. Be impatient. I want you to step back and think of your website as one big open house. You're there to sell the house and you're there to get leads. Most visitors aren't going to buy that house, but they are going to buy a house. They are researching. Take the opportunity to capture their contact information so you can assess their needs and get into a relationship. While the vast majority is just looking, follow up quickly and systematically so you can close all the motivated leads to appointments to do business. That's so important, right? You need to call everybody to figure out who, contact everybody, and then spend the time on the most motivated, push the rest down line, and cultivate them and farm them till they are motivated. Just as some say open houses aren't very effective for lead generation, many believe the internet is equally unproductive and best left to a handful of specialists. 
The truth is these leads generate opportunities. They're only as good as your capture, connect, cultivate, and close system. Focus on having a great site that is cleverly marketed um, and makes timely, compelling offer response marketing strategies. Then make sure you deploy a quick response follow-up program and to reap internet rewards. No matter the market, you must have some presence on the internet. That's no longer a question or an option. You hear that? You know how many people I don't have a website and they're not going to get one? Using the power of the internet to communicate with clients, share information about your services, and validate your understanding as a professional real estate agent is critical to your business. Technology and the internet are no longer a choice. The question is, do you move from simply communicating to effectively lead generating? In a shift, we don't think you have a choice. You must make your technology earn its keep. And what are we at here time-wise? Yeah, we got lots of time. Tactic number seven, price ahead of the market. Seller pricing strategies. The ability to learn faster than your competitors may be the only sustainable competitive advantage. The moment the media declares a real estate shift, it's it's evident. It's as if the market just got doused in cold and a cold shower. The result is fearful buyers, pickier buyers, and eventually fewer buyers. The remaining few claim that if they can't get a good deal, can't get a good buy, then they'll just say goodbye for now. The market has cooled off. Cautious consumers appear willing to let good deals die and great opportunities pass them in hopes of getting a steal. They start missing the forest for the trees. Wary of paying too much, buyers go too far and begin to offer too little, and only properties that appear to be serious bargains get serious attention. Sellers who are slow to recognize this shift will quickly become overpriced and consequently be overlooked. This isn't rocket science. When the market shifts, first buyers and then sellers become overly guarded and set in motion another intriguing game of the price is right. In this version, instead of guessing, there is no top. Buyers now predict there is no bottom. That's so true. I went through the crash. That happened, right? When previously they were, they were aggressively pushing prices forward, now they're equally aggressive in trying to pull them back. The truth is the market remains full of people who generally want to buy and sell. The question is, at what price? The answer sorts both sellers and buyers into a range of categories from not interested to still motivated. This sorting now defines and shapes the marketplace. The desire to do business hasn't gone away, but the heat has gone out of the market. The motivated few are the ones you are looking for and the ones you can help. A shift exposes and magnifies the classic real estate price conflict that has always existed. The asking price the seller wants versus the price a buyer is willing to pay. It just makes it more extreme, right? The contrast is greater. To illustrate this conflict and how the market determines who has the upper hand, I'll share a story. At the bar exam, three different would-be attorneys forget their pens. One asks a test proctor if he has an extra pen. He does, but only one. The first attorney says, I'll give you a dollar for that pen. The second attorney chimes in, I'll give you two dollars. The third says, hey, I'll give you three. By the next time the bar exam is given, all the attorneys know not to forget a pen. And all the test proctors have learned they should bring extra. This time, only one attorney forgets. And when he asks a proctor for a pen, the proctor answers, sure, I'll sell it to you for $3. And another proctor jumps in and say, I'll sell it to you for $2. 
But before the attorney can pull up his blind, uh, pull up his billfold, a third uh, proctor offers, I'll sell you mine for just $1. And in the seller's market, the power of pricing favors the seller and buyers will compete for a limited supply. A shift means this power is now in favor of the buyer and the sellers will compete to attract a limited supply of buyers. It's also, this is why it's so important when you sell, right? Our goal in representing a seller in a shift is to use pricing to empower them as much as possible. And that's not easy. The window of opportunity. If someone is to buy their house, sellers must be aware of and buy into the concept of a window of opportunity. This phenomenon means that when a home first comes on the market, it attracts attention from those agents who are currently working with motivated buyers or those agents who are motivated by the price to go find one. If any agent or their buyer believes that a house is poorly priced, it loses its opportunity and doesn't draw their attention. Basically, it gets written off from the beginning. Once this happens, it isn't easy to get those agents or buyers back, even with a series of price reductions or improvements. That is so important. So when they're saying, well, let's test the market and see what happens, you need to tell them this, right? Now, we're not in a, a shifting market right now. At least I don't think we are. At least not according to Gary Keller's definitions of what a shifting market is. Back to the book. First impressions are the original pictures framed in the mind and the heart. They're usually the lasting ones. When memories and opinions get set, they are typically tough to change. The first time someone sees a property is called a window of opportunity because it's the single best chance to create an impression that will sell the house. Kind of like in real life too, right? It's not true that you only get um, first chance. Uh, uh, you don't get a second chance at a first impression because you know time marches on. But in general, right? For the most part, not as some uh, fundamental truth, but mostly true. You do only get one chance at a first impression. It is the best marketing message a seller can send. When priced right and serious, it, we're priced right and serious to sell. If a property isn't appropriately priced for the market from the outset, a seller will likely miss this important first. Your job is to get them to grasp why pricing it right must happen right now. They only get one chance to make a good first impression. Making the wrong impression will cost the seller time and money. And this has been tested, and there's a picture here, the price reduction effect. 116 days on market, price reduced. 40 days on market, price not reduced. Sellers with a price reduction need two to three times longer to sell, potentially delaying their move and increasing their carrying costs. Pricing houses for successful sales never as simple as some might think. Continually changing market conditions and circumstances make pricing a skill as well as a science. The research analysis and judgment that goes into competitive pricing isn't readily evident in most agents' listing presentations. And truthfully, some real estate agents don't actually approach it with the thoroughness it deserves. A market shift absolutely underscores the importance of pricing and exposes uh, cavalier agents who don't give it research, attention, and serious thought. The most successful agents become masters of pricing and masterful in getting their sellers to trust the findings and act on them. And this can be a challenging thing to do, right? But he's pointing out if you're, you need to become good at this, if you want to be the most successful, buyers are always looking for value. 
Regardless of the market, they want the best property available at the lowest price. Even the socialist communist scum. who You know what I'm talking about, right? The one who think everybody should have everything for free when they go shopping and they're spending their own money. Never go buy the most expensive thing with the least amount of value, do they? No, you fucking morons. Back to the book. A shift doesn't change this. It only accentuates it. This happens because of what the shift does change, the direction speed at which a buyer thinks prices are going. I'm going to highlight all that too, right? This is like the essence of economics. Supply and demand with perceived value, right? As an agent, you know this, so you do not all, you not only advise your sellers on what their home will likely sell for, but also the general pricing of the market. You are making an observation and a forecast. The observation is the science and the forecast is the skill. Observation of current pricing is a science that requires a thorough, rational, fact-based analysis. Forecasting is an acquired skill. An inexact ability to predict market direction and speed. The information to do this is there and available. But someone must put in the time and effort to uncover it, interpret it, learn from it, and use it. No, but I don't think I'm one of those people. Um, the art of pricing persuasion. A seller not only needs you to master the science and skill of pricing, but also the art of persuasion. In a shift, most sellers are actually triers who never become salts. The market becomes oversaturated with unsuccessful wannabes who didn't get the formula of direction and speed correct. If they are to become true sellers, then they are going to need competitive professional guidance to price their houses to sell in the desired time frame. For sellers in a shift, the need for an agent who has mastered the science, the skill, and the art of pricing becomes critical. The essence of pricing science is identifying the right comparable properties. The right comps make the analysis more accurate and the seller's acceptance more likely. So what makes property comparable? There are four main factors, location, size, amenities, and condition. Then you must factor in when it is sold or when pending. You may also use properties currently on the market to get a sense of the current competition. Whether you use recent pendings and solds or active listings and expires, you are attempting to assess the price range in which a home will sell. In the final analysis, all else being equal, and that's where you've done in this and selecting the comps, the price impacts marketability and ultimately saleability. That's what all motivated sellers must understand and their agents must persuade them about. In addition to their home's immediate value, sellers are also challenged to come to terms with another reality of the marketplace, the direction and speed at which the market is moving. This is determined by studying the area economy, grasping the motivations of available buyers, and reconciling this with listed, pending, and sold data from the market. So he's like multiple things. He's getting he's getting information from multiple sources is what he's saying here, right? He's not just trusting one indicator. I'm pretty sure you saw that, but I just thought I would point that out, right? He's not just looking at one thing and saying he's looking at what's listed. He's looking at what's sold. He's talking to buyers and how they're seeing value. Um, he's All this to project into the future, right? So basically, the more information you have, the better. Patterns will emerge and require interpretation. Sometimes they're obvious and sometimes they're not. 
And nobody really knows ultimately, by the way, at least not in the long term. Either way, sellers need to know. They need to understand the full extent of the market trends and implications for pricing. The direction in which a market is going and the speed at which it's moving determine pricing strategies. Properties that are appropriately priced for the market will always make the best impression. I'm going to highlight that. They'll be the first shown, the most talked about, and the first to receive offers, and the most likely to sell. But if the price doesn't match the direction of the market, then buyers will merely move on and never even give it a second thought. Since they won't even look at it, they'll never get, get to experience the property's real appeal. The best way to truly serve a seller in a shift is to persuade them to outthink the other sellers they must compete against. Yeah. Competition. One of the greatest things that most people don't like makes us all better, right? When the buyers pull back successfully, uh, when the buyers pull back, successful sellers must be persuaded to step out in front. They must price ahead of the market. Don't chase the market. Let the market chase you. Statistically speaking, sellers will find themselves facing one of three real estate markets, a buyer's market, a seller's market, or a bounce market. And as they're confronted with each market, they'll discover they have three pricing strategies from which to choose. Priced at the market, priced behind the market, or priced ahead of the market. And actually, I fucked that up over the over this year, last year in 2016. I had a couple opportunities at some Ferndale listings. And to his point, I was just looking at what was sold and what was active. And I was seeing how hot the market was, but I wasn't pricing ahead of the market anyway. Both these houses sold for about 15% more than the next highest sale. Yeah, that's what he's talking about, pricing ahead of the market. And those agents got those and got them sold. And I'm sure one of the reasons they got them was they, they said, hey, look, let's price ahead of the market. Now, they might have been lucky, right? But I'll give them skill. So that's why I lost those listings. So I wasn't pricing ahead of the market. Um. In practice, only the buyer and seller markets are considered when choosing a pricing strategy. The reason a balanced market is taken off the table is because the transitional period between a buyer's and seller's market is short-lived. Transitional markets are usually fleeting. As such, markets usually move in one direction or the other with little to no pause in between. It's why you hear people say we're in a buyer's market or in a seller's market, but virtually never hear them say we're in a balanced market. This is important to grasp because it is thinking that drives pricing strategy decisions. Not chasing the market means pricing your listings ahead of it. When a house isn't priced ahead of the market, it's essentially behind the opportunity curve. The opportunity to get the best price possible. This may seem paradoxical, but is usually, but is actually the foundational principle of successful pricing in a shift. Successfully pricing means getting the maximum price for the house and that market, but the strategies can differ based upon the direction of the market. Sellers must first decide if they really need to want or sell. This is their decision to make. Once they decide to sell, our job as agents is to show them how to make that happen. Once they see how the market really works, they can then decide what they want to do. As soon as the market price has been established, the question every seller must then answer is, what should my pricing be? This is a strategic question, not a value question. Boom. 
What a house is worth is the an- is the answer to a value question. But what a house will sell for is the answer to a sales price question. They are clearly different questions. When a seller is ready to sell, there is only one thing they want to know. What's the best price their house will sell for right now? When sellers go to price their property, two things matter. Where the market is now and the direction it's going. And that is why they must be strategic if they want to get the best price in the right time. When the seller wants to sell and a property valuation has determined a price range for what a home might sell for at that time, a pricing strategy must be chosen. Before a seller chooses a strategy, they must make a very important decision. Do they want to sell for the maximum price now or do they want to maximize the price uh, or they want to maximize the price possible? When asked this question, literally every seller immediately answers both, which means they have misunderstood the question. Getting the maximum price now or getting the maximum price possible presents two different choices in a seller's market. In a buyer's market, they are in fact the same. In other words, in a buyer's market, maximum price and minimum time are the same strategy. It's important to know. Successful pricing means getting the maximum price now for a house. But getting a maximum price doesn't necessarily mean getting the maximum price possible. When home values are on the rise, sellers can clearly price their home to sell at its maximum price now. This is choosing at market pricing. If they want to sell quicker, they can choose behind the market pricing by offering price below the market. This would mean they're strategically making less money in return for a faster sale, a trade-off only they can justify. The seller has the opportunity to anticipate where the market is going and, if time isn't an issue, see if they can maximize their financial opportunity. If they have... The time, this could mean holding off from selling for a while longer until the market pricing rises enough to pay their price. While there is risk in this strategy in that it is truly trying to time the market, it can work. The example I gave you for my uh, Ferndale listings I lost out on. They could also consider marketing it now at the future price. But unless it is an amazing property, it will simply fail the window of opportunity test and become shopped. In other words, the seller would run the risk of simply being another overpriced listing on the market. A rising market can actually forgive a small overpricing of a highly desirable property, but never a big one. When uh, when home prices are falling, sellers are in a real bind. Pricing behind the market when prices are rising means seller could be leaving money on the table for a quicker sale. But pricing behind the market when prices are falling means seller just won't ever sell and declining market selling now and maximizing the price turn out to require the exact same strategy. Buyers always want a great buy, but when they're shopping for a house in a clear buyer's market, they're in essence looking for an even greater buy. They're looking for a bargain. If everything is priced at the same, then what goes through their mind is where is the bottom? Buyers know they're in a shift, but if everything is priced alike, they get confused because it appears to them that sellers still want too much. This is a real dilemma, so they tend to become fence sitters. Value is a comparative concept, so when everything is priced the same, buyers become uncertain about where the value is. 
In a rising market, they have faith that values are at their lowest and they don't fear current prices. But in a falling market, they have no faith in current prices and fear paying too much. As a result, they're looking for the lowest price home as an indication of the best value. I remember going through all this with the last crash. Sellers also have a dilemma because in a falling market, it usually means all sellers are going to have to take a price cut. The market price is getting ready to fall across the board. This is when anyone who wants to sell in a shift must become very strategic. Sellers have to realize they must stand out now and get sold or they'll be chasing the market all the way to the bottom. And we don't want that, right? If they price at the market, they'll in essence always be overpriced for what the market will pay at the moment. Their only real choice if they want to maximize their price and sell now is the price ahead of the market. This means dropping their price below it. How far below it becomes a critical question. All sellers naturally fear underselling their house, and rightfully so. However, in a shifting market, the greater risk is in overpricing. This happens by pricing it at the market, and this is where it gets a little confusing and tough for a seller to swallow. Unless they're underpricing it, they will end up underselling it. Time is not on their side. Buyers in a shift are shopping for a good deal. This means they're hunting for the lowest priced home. This means less than any of the other homes. Sellers in a shift must outthink other sellers, the triers, and get ahead of them. If a home isn't priced ahead of the market, it may well be priced out of the market. Once sellers fall behind, they can end up chasing the market all the way down and losing the margin they would have gained by simply pricing it right in the first place. And that is so important. You're just chasing it, right? And there's a picture here showing I'm chasing all the way down that they'll never get it. And by chasing it down, you end up getting less instead of making a decision now, right? One of those strange things. Um, we're in a race against time is what you tell every seller. The best price you'll get is the one you get now. If you wait, it will just be lower. Pricing at the market is really overpricing in a shift and simply too high a risk to take. Whether the market is on the way up or on the way down, sellers should always price to the market they're headed to. Because markets never stay the same, right? They're either getting hotter or colder. And when they pass through the balance, they're heading one way or the other rather quickly. The way to guide a seller to the understanding the market is to show them graphics and then talk them through each of the numbered points. This creates a logical analysis of the thinking behind your pricing recommendations. It is a way for you to help them discover the facts and overcome their fears or misunderstandings. It is a way to empower. It is your way to empower them and give them the competitive advantage you want. The challenge. Research supports the fact that sellers and buyers are typically out of sync with the realities of the market. In a seller's market, sellers tend to dwell in the future and buyers in the past. Yeah, deal with that right now. I got to do better, don't I? Sellers want to push prices up and buyers want to hold the line. In a buyer's market, buyers want to place themselves in the future and sellers want to dwell in the past. Buyers want to push prices down and sellers want to hold the line. The net result is a chasm between the buyer and seller's perception of what the home is currently worth. Um, effective consultations about pricing can bridge the gap, but it's not easy. The challenge is that buyer's market 
in a buyer's market, buyers usually make offers in anticipation of the market dropping. This means that it's up to the real estate agent to pull the seller forward, not just to where the market is today, but where it likely be in a few weeks or even months. Given this reality and a shift, sellers need to need a knowledgeable agent more than ever. Specifically, they need a professional and brutally honest pricing advice. I had this happen the other night on the phone. A guy was yelling, literally yelling at me. And you're talking about a number, you know, half of what I'm talking about. And if you're talking about the number, you need never call me back. It was a number so small. I said, okay, I won't ever call you back. We'll see if he ever calls me back. In the end, it's a pay me now or pay me later proposition for both you and the seller. If you can't get them to face the realities up front, you may find yourself with them in a few weeks explaining why the home hasn't shown much less sold and talking price reductions. For the seller, they risk chasing the market and netting far less than if they just priced it right from day one. The most frustrating situation is when a seller lists their home behind the market, attracts an interested buyer who makes a below list price offer and the seller rejects it. You might have to remind the seller that they should treat every offer as if it will be the only offer they will ever get. This doesn't mean they should accept a lowball offer, but it does mean they will have to do a reality check on how intent they are on selling. When they reject an offer, it's likely a, they are buying back the home at the price they, with the expect with the expectation they can resell it and get what they want. Ooh, I like that. Highlighting that. No one would ever buy a home this way, but sellers rebuy their own home every day and usually lose big in the process. Dave Jinks illustrated this point by sharing a personal experience. In 1995, the market had shifted and sales were tough to come by when he put his home up for sale. He had it listed for $195,000, quickly got an offer for $180,000 and flat out rejected it. As knowledgeable as he was, he still fell into the seller buys the home back trap. A year later, after 12 months of carrying costs, he says he had to accept an offer of 170 to get it sold and get out from underneath it. He says he knows exactly what it's like to chase the market and he didn't feel very smart or very happy with the outcome. And he got out cheap, I think. The Tale of Two Markets. In a recent interview with a top agent in Massachusetts, I asked how things were going in his local area. Our market is really a tale of two markets, he said. 80% of homes are overpriced and 20% are well-priced. The well-priced properties are getting multiple offers. The overpriced properties are getting none. I immediately realized that in every market and every time there are two markets, one where properties are priced to sell and the other where properties are priced to sit. A seller is either in a market or out of it. And unlike sellers' markets where time on the market can pull overpriced homes back into the market, after a downshift, every day just pushes overpriced homes farther and farther out of the market. Based on this critical understanding, we recommend that a dialogue with the seller might go like this. This is the agent. Mr. and Mrs. Seller, just because a house is on the market doesn't mean it's in the market. In every market, there are actually two markets. There are properties that are priced well enough and in good enough condition to attract interested buyers. Those homes attract offers and sell. Then there are homes that are overpriced or are in less than ideal conditions. They don't attract buyers and just sit on the market. So if you look at this graph, figure 35, and it's um, anyway, it's just an XY graph, right? In the market, now the market, and only 20% of them are in the market, and the vast majority of them are out of the market. That's what he's talking about. 
Um, you can see some houses are in the market and some houses are out of the market. Does that make sense? Seller, sure. I've seen the same thing on eBay. People who auction good stuff with a fair uh, reserve price attract a lot of bidding. Others try to pawn something off with an unrealistic reserve and they don't get any bids at all. Agent, great. That's the point. Buyers have a sense of what's fair, what's a fair value and what's not. And they just won't show up if it's not in the ballpark. Now, when we were in a seller's market, we saw a lot of multiple offers and it wasn't so much whether a home would sell. It was a question of how long it would take and how much it would sell for. Um, as you can see in um, figure 16, almost all the homes are in the market. And in this feature, and this uh, picture, still an XY, but it's reversed. Basically, in a seller's market, 80% of the homes are in the market and 20% are out. Seller, I understand, but what does that mean to me today? Well, in a buyer's market like we're in today, many homes aren't really in the market at all. There's a lot of inventory, but they aren't as many buyers. The buyers who are looking expect a great value, a good home at a good price. And with all the competition for their attention, they have a lot of choices. They start to be really picky. Seller, I guess that's why it's called a buyer's market, right? Agent, yes. That's why it's very important for us to get your home in the best condition possible and then price it correctly and competitively. Buyers are looking for value pricing, and if we don't meet those expectations, we'll look oh, we'll look overpriced and be overlooked. As you can see in the figure, the market of homes that are actually selling is small and competitive, and we don't get if we don't get in the market, we risk ending up out of the market with no showings and no offers, or worse, in no man's land where we get enough interest to think we might be in the market, but no offers. We need to price ahead of the market. Let's make the market instead of chasing it. As your agent, I can't change the market conditions. It is my job to show you how to get your house sold and the existing market conditions. Seller, I'm pretty sure I get it. It just makes me wish we decided to sell earlier. Agent, the truth is this actually may be a good time to sell and even a solid financial opportunity for your family. Yes, we might not be able to price the home as high as we would have last year, but if you don't sell now, you'll be selling for even less next year. Seller. So how do we do that? I've prepared some research on the prices of other homes available in this area and neighborhoods like it, as well as some numbers that reflect what it is and isn't selling, or to put it another way, what is and isn't in the market. I previewed a lot of these homes and uh, we can decide together how best to price your house to sell. The tale of two markets is simple proven way to engage your sellers in the reality of effective pricing and staging, discussing their tactic. Um, number eight, stand out from the competition. Remember, it's not about you. It's about the market. The current state of the market is the determining factor for pricing. You don't make the market. You simply show how to get the home sold in the market. I love that. You don't make the market. Nobody makes the market, right? <laughs> I guess if you owned all the houses, you could make the market, but you are actually bringing them the solution and showing them how to help their own cause. These charts and dialogues should give you the confidence to advise your sellers and the conviction to be strong in your approach. Truthfully, this is what they expect you to do as their fiduciary agent. To do less is to serve less than honorably in your role as a real estate professional. To take or not to take an overpriced listing. Even the best research and most impassioned presentations can sometimes fall in deaf ears. 
If the seller insists on listing their home at too high a price, what is a real estate agent to do? In our experience, agents usually fall into two distinct schools of thought. Never take an overpriced listing or always take the listing no matter what the price. Many insist that you should never take an overpriced listing. From their point of view, overpriced properties can be a liability in terms of time, money, and reputation. Listing a home takes hours, involves real uh, real marketing expenses, and if it doesn't sell, it's your reputation that's eroding in the front yard. Agents who adopt this philosophy aim at ramping up their lead generation so they have as many listing opportunities saying no to a listing doesn't feel like saying no to income. Still, this approach isn't for everyone. Others see listing as a marketing opportunity that shouldn't be ignored. Research for the millionaire real estate agent absolutely supports this. Many top agents report that they could reasonably expect to net two buyers from a a well-marketed home. That's a real opportunity if done right. So many take the path of list it, list all you can and market the best you can. They view this approach as a market share and buyer opportunity equal to a potential listing selling. So each approach has its supporters. We have interviewed too many successful agents on either side of the argument to tell you which approach you should follow. Experience will show which strategy is best for you. We do believe that regardless of which approach you choose, you fundamentally always want a motivated seller. If you're not, if they're not truly motivated, time has shown that neither approach will work well for you or for them. The seven maxims of pricing in a shifting market. Be a student of your market. Know your numbers. Number two, focus your main comps on, acti- on actives. Pendings and solds may be out of date. Be a student of property. Preview them so you understand what is selling and why. Keep your presentations as current as possible. Let your ongoing research do the talking. Number five, pre-qualify for motivation sellers who most need to sell, sell most often. Number six, price ahead of the market to avoid chasing it. Um, Number seven, always secure price reductions in advance to avoid falling behind the market. The price is right. I'm going to highlight all these. The Price is Right. Bob Barker's The Price is Right was an enduring phenomenal uh, phenomenon highlighted by his trademark call, Come on down. While the catchphrase might take an ominous meaning for home prices in the shifting market, there is something we can learn from the longest-running game show ever. Everyone loves to be a pricing expert, but very few are. The wisdom here is to be purposeful in your conversations with sellers, providing them with the necessary data and engaging them in the process of pricing their house to sell. Just like on the game show, only the ones who get the price right will ever win. And I think that's where we're going to wrap up this week. So we're finished on page one of 56 of the shift. Let's go back and review, right? Because we read and review. All right. Are you ready? All right. They don't have a pipeline because they don't cultivate the leads that can't be immediately that can't be immediately closed for an appointment. So, if you don't have some sort of follow-up process, you're only skimming off the top and you're missing a ton of deals, right? You just are. Period report. 
Lead cultivation, contacting leads that wouldn't originally set an appointment with you is a vital part of your time block lead generation time. Follow-up Friday. That's why I have it. It works. In a shifted market, unmotivated and unrealistic sellers can cost you time and money. And if you're a wholesaler like me also, or you're flipping or anything else like that, the same sort of thing can apply, right? I try not to set appointments with people or with sellers that aren't um, motivated in some way, shape, or form. And the more motivation, the better. And after lead generation, lead conversion is the most business critical activity you must muster. This is why we role play, overcome objections. We practice these kind of things, right? Um, We read these books like we're doing now. We uh, work with people smarter than us. You can't expect to meet the challenges of today with yesterday's tools and expect to be in business tomorrow. So whether you need to embrace technology that matters, right? If you're sitting on the fence, get on the Facebook. Don't fuck around on Facebook. You're an adult. You can be disciplined. Use Facebook for for money. Use Facebook to help your buyers and sellers. Use Facebook to help your real estate investment business. This is just an example I'm I'm giving. Get a website, right? Contrary to a lot of tech talk success on the internet isn't measured in clicks, unique visitors, page views, or even registrations. It's measured just one way, in appointments to do business. The good example I gave was my um, Detroit Investor TV series, which never, I don't think, I think the most I got was like 450 views. Sold a shit ton of houses. That's why so many come to understand that while the internet can be a great source of leads, it can also be a great source of financial loss and frustration. You're not using it appropriately, right? It's a vehicle that enables you to offer them real estate information. That's what they're talking about on the website. In exchange for their contact information, a win-win information swap that must be the foundation of your entire internet strategy. You must aggressively think offer response and lead capture at every turn on your site, right? If you want, this is if you want your website to be accountable. So the money and the time and effort you're putting in, make sure it's not some pet project or some baby thing that you absolutely love, right? And you're like married to this idea and whether it works or not. Uh, no, if we want to measure and track these things, then um, that's what we must do and that's how we must think. It won't change. So when you offer what they want, your site will be sticky, as techies say. Because when visitors who find your site find what they want, they tend to hang around. This core understanding of their wants and needs must be the driving force in how you build, update, and maintain your website. Meaning don't fall in love with your ideas. Give them what they want so they stick around and then convert them. To be successful with your site, you must have a strong lead generation plan that pulls, pushes, and leads people to it. The most effective lead generation plan will use both offline and online marketing to accomplish this, right? I think we beat that to death. In this game of search engine placement, if your business doesn't appear in the top three or four results, you are invisible to consumers using only search engines to find websites. Targeted internet lead generation strategies allow you to be a big fish and a strategically defined pond and captured 
and capture anyone attracted to it. And this is in reference to competing with the big guys, right? The more narrow your focus, the better. Niche, niche, niche. Your web address should appear on yard signs, letterhead, business cards, brochures, flyers, direct mail, all advertising. In short, on anything and everything you use to market your business. Maybe even your car. Why the fuck not? Without a strong conversion plan in place, sending everyone to your website is like sending them to outer space. It's a great trip from them, but you'll never see them again, right? So make sure you get something out of it too, which is why you're doing it, right? With the internet, you must be intentional about capturing enough useful information to be able to get back to prospects. What is the point of getting prospects if you can't contact them? You need an email address. You need a phone number. The important thing to remember is that the offers will have to be very persuasive to get the immediate response you seek. Don't be doing any shitty offers, right? I don't know what's working. If you know, No, make it good, man. One of the reasons why I give so much in this podcast, I want, I want this, I want this podcast to be the podcast that real estate investors listen to period, no matter where you're at in America, maybe even the world. And the only way I'm ever going to achieve that, if I ever do will be to offer insane value, insane value where you'd have to be a fool not to listen to the podcast, whether or not I ever do that, that's another thing, but If I want to attract even more people, that's what I have to do, right? Speed wins this contest almost every time. And this is what he's talking about. When they do reach out, speed the lead, right? Within five minutes. In fact, Joe Delia, um, my boss, is always talking about how bad it is. Like pretty much like a 90% drop, something like that. Some insane drop after five minutes, right? An auto-response email that is warm and service-oriented is a great first step and an excellent way to ensure you give this quick response. But an immediate phone call or personal email is even better. The mantra, respond like they respond, isn't a bad one to follow at all. So if they text, you text. If they email, you email. If, you, if they call, you call. doesn't mean you should always only contact that way, but at least to start, right? Some things can't be done via text, right? Tweaking your site and its offers through trial and error should get the numbers up and make the difference. So the cool part about that is don't just put something up and hope it works and just leave it that way forever. You know, test some stuff, do some stuff to it, right? Just as you advise your sellers, stand out from the crowd and be more compelling than your competition, right? If something isn't working, move on or expect to come home empty handed. I did this forever. Like you fall in love with an idea and you're just like, you know, if I just work hard enough, that was, if I just work hard enough, I can fix anything or I can do anything. That's not true. Some shit doesn't work no matter how good a person you are, no matter how hard you work or how many resources you throw into it. Um, Communism, Marxism. Yeah, you fuckers. While the vast majority is just looking, Follow up quickly and systematically so you can close all the motivated leads to appointments and do business. One of the things when I sit down with people and they're not having success in wholesaling, like I'm not getting something, it's not working. 
I go through and I go, okay, here's your list. Of, okay, when did you call these people back? Well, I haven't called them back yet. When did they call in? Three days ago. Well, why didn't you call them? They didn't sound motivated. Um, you call everybody back and you call everybody back as fast as you can. And you go through a systematic procedure um, to determine if they're motivated or not. And I don't know anybody who can tell, you know, there's no such thing as like mediums or anything like that. There's no mind reading. You have to call them. Got to call back everybody and you need to do it in a systematic way as quickly as possible so you can sort who's discarded, who gets put in the drip campaign, and who gets pushed for a close today. This is how you do it. It's like mining, right? You don't just find chunks of gold on the ground or diamonds on the ground or very often, right? Normally, you got to dig through a ton of shit to find it. And most of the time when people are failing, they don't want to do the work of mining and refining. That's the bottom line. Pick up your fucking phone. Quickly, a shift exposes and magnifies the classic real estate price conflict that has always existed. The asking price a seller wants versus the price a buyer is willing to pay. A shift means this power is now in favor of the buyer and that sellers will compete to attract the limited supply of buyers. If any agent or their buyer believes that a house is poorly priced, it loses its opportunity and doesn't draw their attention. Basically, it gets written off from the beginning. Once this happens, it isn't easy to get those agents or buyers back, even with a series of price reductions or home improvements. The first time someone sees a property is called the window of opportunity because of the single best chance to create the impression that will sell the house. This is a conflict I've had with people before too, right? Price high and hope you get it and then do a bunch of price reductions or just price at the right price. If you can't create some competition, maybe even get bid up and or just sell it fast. The most successful agents become masters of pricing and masterful in getting their sellers to trust the findings and act on them. Buyers are always looking for value regardless of the market. They want the best property available at the lowest price. A shift doesn't change this. It actually accentuates it. This happens because of what the shift does change, the direction and speed at which a buyer thinks prices are going. Patterns will emerge and require interpretation. Sometimes they're obvious and sometimes they're not. This is what he's talking about, about leading the market, whether it's a hop, a seller's market or a buyer's market. Don't just look at one source of information. Look at multiple sources of information and see if you can't get something out of it. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, but don't just look at one, right? Look at multiple um, streams of information. Properties that are appropriately priced for the market will always make the best impression. So yes, you want it to be staged. Yes, you want it to be beautiful. Yes, you want everything right. But if it's priced stupidly, you're kind of throwing a lot of that away. The best way to truly serve a seller in a shift is to persuade them to outthink the other sellers they must compete against. Same thing when you're selling your investment property, right? In a buyer's market, they are in fact the same. In other words, in a buyer's market, maximum price and minimum time are the same strategy. 
This is what he's talking about, where if you chase it down all the way, you could end up getting less than just taking the lower offer or pricing it lower now and selling it fast. In a rising market, they have faith that values are at their lowest and they don't fear current prices. But in a falling market, they have no faith in current prices and fear paying too much. As a result, they're looking for the lowest price homes as an indication of the best value. All sellers naturally fear underselling their house and rightfully so. However, in a shifting market, the greater risk is in overpricing. Once sellers fall behind, they can end up chasing the market all the way down and losing the margin they would have gained by pricing it right in the first place. I think this applies to a lot of things too, right? Whether the market is on the way up or on the way down, sellers should always price to the market they're headed to. In a seller's market, sellers tend to dwell on the future and buyers in the past. When all there is is now. When they reject an offer, it's like they are buying back the home at the price with the expectation they can resell it for and get what they want. That's a great way to do it. And this happened to me in the crash. I had this house on Buckingham that I just rehabbed gorgeously. And it was worth 120 at one point in time. But between the time I bought it and rehabbed it, we started entering a buyer's market and a falling market, right? And believe it or not, I got an offer. And I had, by the way, I had like uh, 55000 into it. I got an offer for 80000 that I rejected. I ended up losing that property to foreclosure, even though I paid on it. It's a good story at some point in time. Fucking Chase Bank, cocksuckers they are. And not the good way, cocksuckers, the bad way. Anyway, I want to part of some class action lawsuit where – I got $800. Thank you, government, for that. But uh, point is, I wouldn't have been in that situation if I accepted that offer and I recognized the market for what it was and I wasn't uh, living in the past, right? Living in the past. When I rejected the offer, I basically bought the home back in hopes I could sell it for more and ended up losing my ass. You don't make the market. You simply show them how to get their home sold in the market. And the seven maxims for pricing in a shifted market. Number one, be a student of the market. Know your numbers. Number two, focus your main comps on activities or actives, uh, pendings, and solds may be out of date. Be a student of property. Preview them so you understand what is selling and why. Keep your presentation as current as possible. Let your ongoing research do the talking. Number five, pre-qualify for motivation. Sellers who most need to sell, sell most often. Number six, price ahead of the market to avoid chasing it. Number seven, always secure price reductions in advance to avoid falling behind the market. We're finishing on page 156. Next week, if you're reading along, we're going to finish on page 157. And I don't know how many more times we're going to be to finish this book, but that's all right. It's a good book. I hope you guys are enjoying it. I'm having a good time. How about you? All right, folks. If you enjoy and find this podcast helpful, as invaluable, you know, this is valuable to you. 
I would encourage you to help me out because I got some goals. I want some help down. You know, I want some help out on, right? And we, I want to grow this podcast. I love doing this podcast. I enjoy it. I'm getting a lot of value out of it, but I can't do it free forever. So one of the things we have to do before I can monetize it in some way, shape, or form is we have to grow it. So go on to iTunes and rate and review. Hook a brother up. I really appreciate it. Share this podcast across all forms of social media. Tell your friends about it. Tell them to pull out their phone. Like if you're listening to this right now and you're sitting next to somebody with a, with a phone, pull them out, show them how to subscribe to this podcast. If they're interested in real estate investing or real estate in general, right? Help me out. I really do appreciate it. And it really does help. It's not a small thing. It may seem like a small thing and you may, maybe I'm too busy to do it. How about you stop what you're doing right now and go do it? Thank you. All right. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, go to renegadedetroit.com. If you want to attend any of the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash renegade Detroit investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit investment club. Go there, like it, hit them up for all the people about the meetings. Go there. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. I'm on Snapchat at Jeremy A. Burgess. And of course you always go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit wholesalers. All right. As I wrap up this podcast, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. I know there are many distractions, mistakes, poisonous people, bad habits that may prevent you from starting or continuing with your goals. You know, stick with it. Don't give up. Do something every day that gets you closer, even if it's one step. And with any luck, you're going to be alive anyway. So why not be better and further down the road? And I'm going to go one step further. I'm going to put this out boldly. If you're hanging around a bunch of people who don't encourage you to do this and who who are actually doing something different, you're fine the way you are. Don't worry about it. You're too tough on yourself, whatever. I'd say it's time to start shopping or at least spending more less time with those kind of people, right? I don't know about you, but I don't need any help doing less, achieving less, accomplishing less, or setting my sights lower, right? Let's head the other direction. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate your attention. I know you guys could be doing anything else. And a ton of you are helping and sharing and rating and reviewing. Thank you, Renegades. I really appreciate it. Till the next podcast. Crush it.